First John chapter three, pick it up in verse 19. Hear God's word. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This sends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, keep your Bibles open because we're going to need them. This is an odd sermon for me. Uh, for the first time in five years, at three o'clock yesterday, I admitted defeat. Um, and I called my dad. <laughs> well, seriously, uh, I, I did. Uh, in the first time in five years, I could not figure out what the text said. Um, and I've dealt with much more difficult, at least on the surface text, than this one. And yet, part of what my desire is as I preach and teach to you each week is I believe that there is usually a narrative flow, there is a logical thought pattern and process. And usually when I try to communicate is I want to say, I want to take you somewhere. I want to start out with a question and answer that question through the course of the sermon. I want to have a singular proposition that we are pushing well, if you read this, now there's a lot of words here that you understand. There's no words here that are confusing. But when you look at it as a whole, you go, I have no idea where John is going. He moves it seemingly without stopping from a heart that condemns you to having confidence before God, but to keeping God's commandments, to abiding with God. It appears that he is, it is topical buckshot coming from John. And maybe that's the case. Maybe it appears within the, the narrative flow of the book that he would maybe be taking a moment to kind of summarize where he's going and to set himself up for the turn into chapter 4. But there's also some issues in that there are some, some of the words here that in the English might appear to be very quite clear, in the Greek are not. There are a few phrases. For example, by this we shall know. What is it referring to? There is great debate amongst good scholars as to whether that's pointing forward to what's about to be said or if that's pointing to back to what, to what has been said. Also, this word reassure. That word reassure in the Greek, it looks all nice and pretty to you. We like the word reassure, but the reality in the Greek is we don't know what it means. There's about three or four different definitions of the Greek word, and there is no consensus as to what it means. And then the phrase in there, God is greater than your heart, which would be as I looked at the text in 1 John a couple months ago and was going, this is where we're going, and I'm going, oh, look, 19 to 24, there's the gospel right there. That phrase, that's going to be, that's a fat pitch, I can, get, I can get to the gospel there. Well, I dive into it, and I, have, I re didn't realize until I started to study in depth this week that I was running into a buzzsaw of debate over that one particular phrase, whether it's actually a gracious phrase, a phrase of speaking of forgiveness, of God removing condemnation from a heart, or it's actually God confirming your heart saying, oh yeah, you're in big trouble. And so I have, if you don't understand the parts, you can't understand the whole. 
And so what I'm saying this morning is I don't necessarily have a great coherent thought about what the whole is going to say. And so I'm going to simply give you some buckshot and we're going to go literally verse by verse and phrase by phrase. But first, really quickly, I want to give you some lessons from my frustrations this week. And believe me, they were frustrations. Uh, I mean, my my wife, I called her at three o'clock yesterday and I was like, I am pulling my hair out. I am literally pulling like clumps of hair. I'm losing my mind. What's going on here? Two things to realize, though, that hopefully would be a comfort to you. I have a master's of divinity, which is the most haughty degree ever, right? We have mastered the divine. But uh, I I have studied. I have been in full-time ministry since I was 19 years old. This is what I do professionally, and yet, for some reason, I couldn't make heads or tails out of this text. Here's two things to learn from this. One, it is okay not to be absolutely certain about what every passage of the Bible teaches. It's okay. There are some places in which it's more clear than others. One of the, I, I love this a couple weeks ago. Some of you may follow the Babylon Bee. It's like the Christian version of the onion. It's like spoof articles. So they write spoof news articles. So the Babylon Bee was making fun of, one of its great targets is John MacArthur. Now listen, some of you have learned from John MacArthur. I love John MacArthur. He's great. I've learned from him. But believe me, he, he, is, he should be a target. Because uh, he doesn't take himself seriously. And so he, he doesn't know how to, to laugh at himself. And so the Babylon Bee goes after him a lot. Well, here's one of the articles that, he, that they wrote about him. And here's the title of it. Sweating John MacArthur awakens from a nightmare in which he's unsure about something. And here's what the article says. According to sources close to John MacArthur, the popular Bible teacher jumped up with a start around 3 a.m. Thursday morning in a cold sweat, suddenly awakening from a nightmare in which he was slightly uncertain about something. Quickly clapping on the lights in the room, the theologian reportedly talked himself down while hiding under his covers as his wife repeatedly reminded him that it's just a dream there, dear, dear. MacArthur later confirmed that the horrific dream featured a question and answer session wherein a faceless man took the microphone and asked MacArthur an incredibly specific question about the particular tense of a Greek verb in Hebrews, and the Bible teacher was unable to come up with an answer. He kept saying to himself, it's not real, Johnny. It's not real. It's just a dream. And MacArthur reportedly reminded himself this as he got got up to get himself a glass of warm milk. This is real life now in which I am absolutely certain about every minuscule issue, he kept saying to himself. And he said to his wife later on, wow, I've never had such a terrible dream in my life. At publishing time of this article, sources had confirmed that MacArthur was now rereading several of his recent books and began to work on a new one just to reassure himself that he was still totally confident in every single one of his minor beliefs on every single issue. And news story from the Babylon Bee. That's not true, but there is theologians and pastors, we can so much give, say, make such certain and put our stamp down and put our foot down with such such certainty in in the way we communicate that it actually can unsettle the person sitting in the pew who has to read the same Bible and go, I'm not sure I see that. And there's all these verses that I'm not sure how to put together. The reality is, is there are places in the Bible that are hard. Peter, an apostle, looked to the writings of Paul, and he actually said, that dude is hard to read. And Peter was an apostle. And then if you actually go read Peter, like particularly in 2 Peter, Peter says some things that you're going, now that, that's weird. So there are places where you're not going to understand it. This is not an excuse not to study hard. This is not an excuse not to um, put your foot down theologically. For example, some of you are just theologically wishy-washy, and you never will put your foot down and have the integrity to hold a position on things, and you need to repent of that and study harder until you can say something of some value instead of just going, well, yeah, I can see that, and I can see that. Listen, the Bible speaks. 
People have died over some of these things. There are important things to put your foot down about theologically. So it's a, but it's okay not to be absolutely certain about every passage what the Bible seems to be teaching. But that's okay because of this. It's okay because the Bible has spoken clearly in other places. In theology, we speak, we have this term called the perspicuity of Scripture. Try to say that 10 times. Perspicuity of Scripture. Uh, Perspicuity, simply put, means clarity, which is really odd, right? An incredibly unclear word to communicate the clarity of Scripture. But literally what the perspicuity of Scripture means is that the, the Bible is clear, and we, we say we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. Sometimes people get the wrong impression that we are implying that everything in the Bible is entirely clear. Well, that's clearly not the case. But it does tell us that there are places, this doctrine says, that the most important things are clear. Here, let's go to a doctrine, and we'll go to a thick and crunchy theological doctrine to point this out. The Westerners Confession of Faith, in chapter 1, paragraph 7, says this, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. Not alike clear unto all. Yet those things that are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation, are so clearly propounded and open in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. In Old English, that's saying, you can still know how to be saved even if you don't understand 1 John 3, 19-24. That's what that's saying. Because God has been so clear, and that in his graciousness to us, he hasn't just communicated to us the gospel once or twice, but it's communicated on every page of the scriptures. In fact, even the historical life of Jesus, he doesn't just give it to us once, right? He gives it to us four times. Because the clarity, he wants to make sure that we are clear on what it looks like, on how to be saved, and the Bible is clear on those things. So... That's my aside this morning to help me feel better and hopefully to help you feel better. Now we move on to the text itself, and we'll take it, instead of one narrative flow this morning, we'll take it piecemeal, just bit by bit, taking each of the phrases. And I'll put them under three headings still to kind of give us some direction, but for, for, the, for all intents and purposes, it's going to go phrase by phrase. Heading one. Heading one is what we could call assured by God, and this is what we see in verses 19 through 20. Verse 19 is where we'll start. It says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth. Now I believe that this that is referred to here in verse 19 is pointing back to the this of verses 11 through 18 where John has just gotten done talking about how important it is that if if you know the love of Jesus for you, then you will then live out in love for one another. He stresses that love for one another is one of the significant tests and signs how you can know you know Jesus. And referring to back to the test of love, John is not merely also here referring to some senses of feeling. Remember how John verses, uh, 3 verses 18 ended. He says, Dear children, let us not love with word or tongue, but with actions or deeds and in truth. That if you want to know whether you love people, it, should, it is not a mystery. It is not based on how you feel towards people generally. It is how you act towards them. If you are acting and you can see deeds of sacrifice and service to people, then you can know that you know Jesus. I think Richard Foster, who writes a great book called Celebration of Discipline, hits on us and, and really targets our hearts in this and some of the, how, how much this convicts us when he says this. In some ways, we would prefer to hear Jesus call us to deny father and mother and to give up and forsake houses and land for the sake of the gospel rather than we would ha- have him tell us to wash feet. 
We would rather hear calls for self-denial because that feels like adventure to us. In other words, what he's saying is we would rather have great stories told of us of jumping in front of buses for people and dying for people. But in service, we much experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, and the trivial. In other words, what he is saying is washing feet on a day-out and day-out basis. This goes everywhere from your, what you choose to do for your vocation to how you parent to how you address and treat people that you serve people in the little and mundane ways. And can you see it? Is it active in your life? So the point that John is making over and over this book is this. You can know you love Jesus because you love one another. Now, it is important and comforting to know in verse 19, interesting in the grammar here, that it says, by this we shall know. It's actually a future tense verb. I got so confused, I got into the Greek all, a ton this week. So you're going to get a bunch of Greek from me because I have nothing else to say. And so what, what, the future tense here is he is saying, and it's actually a means of comfort, that you can know you're of the truth and it's a future tense. You will know someday you're of the truth. And that assurance is something that is built up over your lifetime. What's, what is comforting about that is for you and I, after a couple of last week's passage or two weeks ago, when we look at our lives and we go, my goodness, I don't see very many deeds of love for one another. My deeds, if, if, if anything, they're pretty wishy-washy. They're pretty mediocre. And, and yet what the call here is, is the nice truth is that this is something, this growing in love, this growing in assurance will occur over the course of your lifetime. You'll see more and more signs. The sign of love in your life is you move closer to being more and more like Jesus. For example, right, if you enter the state of Florida, you'll see a sign that says something like 480 miles to Miami. And then you won't see another sign from Miami until about 240 more miles. But the closer you get to Miami, guess what you're going to start to see? A lot more signs from Miami. And the more you become righteous and the more you become holy, and frankly, the closer you are to death, the more, that's not, well, people do go to die in Miami, but, uh, but it, it, the closer you are to death and sanctification, you will grow in your displays of love and affection. The signs will become more abundant. So that's the first thing, 19. By this we shall know, pointing back to the love talked about in verses 11 through 18. Second, I want to look at the rest of verses 19 and 20. And this is where things got really frightening for me this week. And reassure, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and we reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now that phrase, God is greater than our heart, seems on the surface like wonderfully good news and perhaps it is. But here's the historic debate on that phrase. There's two ways we could title the two debates or the two signs, two sides of how to understand that phrase in this way. There's the comfort interpretation, which is the way most people, at least your NIV, your ESV, seem to have translated it in probably the way the first time you read that text, the way I took it and the way you took it, which is the comfort interpretation. Verse 20, when it says our hearts are reassured, because in the case that it's telling us that, because in the case that our hearts condemn us, when our hearts tell us you are not loving enough, you should have no certainty about your love for Jesus. When our hearts condemn us like that, that God is there to speak louder than our hearts, that we are not under condemnation, but under forgiveness. The point is that God's judgment, God's voice is more reliable than your heart. And that is true. Guess what? Your heart lies. Your feelings lie. Now listen, it is important to listen to your feelings, right Jane? But they can lie to you. And they can tell you things that are not true about yourself. And so even conviction, condemnation, some of you have, are overly sensitive spirits in which for you, believing the gospel is the hard thing to believe that you're actually forgiven. 
with a point that when our conscience is weak and we lack assurance, this, this text or this interpretation would be saying that John is saying to us, don't despair. God knows everything. He knows all those sins. And yet his word over you is still forgiveness and affection. We, we, they would quote places like Romans chapter 8, verse 1, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the comfort interpretation. There's another interpretation, though, and that is what is called the conviction or the conquering interpretation. And this, it would interpret chapter or verse 20 this way. If, our, if your heart condemns you, then how much more will God condemn you because he is greater than your heart and he knows everything? You don't even have a sense of only half, you don't even know half your sins is essentially their interpretation. How much more does God who actually understands and sees the depths of the grossness of your heart understand your sinfulness? Your, your heart sees some sins, but imagine all the sins that God sees. You can't escape your own judgment, and if you can't escape the your judgment of your own conscience, how much more you're gonna escape God's judgment, the all-powerful, all-knowing God. Now, the reality is actually both of these interpretations can be consistent with other teachings in the scriptures. But you can't teach both these interpretations at the same time and in the same place. The text cannot be true in both directions at the same time. So which one is it? And this is where I said, threw up my hands around three o'clock yesterday and said, I don't know. And I'm giving up and I'm gonna write a sermon that communicates that I don't know. For, the reality is, listen, there are many wonderful people that you know have, have come down to different places on this. For example, guys who take the comfort interpretation, James Montgomery Voice, Alistair Begg, and Tim Keller take the, the comfort approach. The conviction approach is the historic approach. The Greek followers of the... Fathers in the first couple centuries of the, of the church took the judgment or the condemnation or the conviction approach. Almost all the reformers in the 15th and 16th century took the judgment approach. And Kevin DeYoung and John Stott and a number of others have taken this approach to the text. And I decided if they can't figure it out, I'm not going to decide I'm going to figure it out either. This, what is further complicated, though, about this text is we also come in with assumptions. You know, we all read the Bible through various lenses, and we all, when we look at this, this passage where it talks about your heart condemning you, we all, we can look at that and we can ask two questions about that. Does my heart condemn me justly or does my heart condemn me unjustly? Listen, there are some of you in which if your heart tells you that you are unloving and that you should have no assurance before God of God's love for you and God's presence in your life, that is a just condemnation because guess what? You have no love. You, have, you should have no assurance. But for others of you, the, oh, the sensitive ones, there is just, that is, it is an unjust condemnation in which if someone were to look at your life and look at it 10 years ago versus now, there's change. There, there's significant change in your life. You love better than you did 10 years ago and three weeks ago. And so the part of the issue is when your heart says condemns you, the question is, is that right or is that wrong? And that's somewhat up to the reader. And which direction are you coming from? Are you hearing the Holy Spirit convict you of this and condemn you of your sin to call you back to the gospel? And here's the truth, the beautiful truth, and where I, I actually take some comfort this morning. Both lead to the same place. They take a little bit different paths to get there, but they both lead to the same place. First is this, the conviction interpretation would have the voice of God persuading those who are justly condemned of their condemnation and thus pointing to them their need of the Savior. That word reassure in the Greek can actually mean conquered or persuaded. In other words, that your heart, the, the, the conviction 
interpretation could be telling you, listen, your heart's trying to tell you that you have no safety, that you are not saved. And in fact, God is trying to tell you that. And that is a means of grace. Because if you are not saved, if, you're, if you have no evidence in your life of loving God, God calling you and condemning you for that and judging you for that and communicating that to you is a means of grace because you, then you go, oh my goodness, I need the gospel of Jesus Christ. I desperately want to need to fall on my face before him. And so this is, the direction here is I get condemned by my heart. God confirms and actually says it's a whole lot worse than you really realize. And then you go, I may not be a believer. I need the gospel. The second person, the second interpretation, the comfort interpretation, the voice of God reassures and gives rest to our condemning hearts. That's how it was translated in the ESV. Gives rest to our condemning hearts by speaking to us of God's forgiveness of telling us about Jesus' work on our behalf. Listen, the direction here is still, the end point is still the same place. Falling at the feet of Jesus and saying, I need you. I need to embrace your forgiveness. I need the work of Jesus who takes away all condemnation from me, right? Romans 8.1. But it's a little shorter road in some ways. You need to be convinced that yes, you are forgiven. You need to be convinced that God does love you. You don't necessarily have to be convinced that you're already struggling with sin, that you don't love in the degree that you should. Some of you, listen, the comfort interpretation for some of you, and you need to be told that, that you, got, you need to be told to forgive yourself because God has already forgiven you. That God knows everything that you've done. He knows it better. He knows the depths of your heart better than you do. And yet this, this interpretation would tell you it is okay. God has forgiven you, yes, of those things. Now the reality is I'm not sure which one. But because of that, you can choose. I'm giving you permission. You can choose, where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? And what is, what is the nature of your heart? Listen, you might be able to see it in some of your personalities. Some of you are the type of people in which you've always kind of been a hard learner. You're not very sensitive to things. You have to learn the hard way. Maybe you have a more hard, stubborn heart. And for you, maybe you need God to come down on you and say, yeah, that, that, that inkling in your heart that says things are not right between you and me, I'm confirming that, and you need that challenge this morning. Others of you are in a place where you've come in, and you evaluate your life, and you go, I don't love and deed and word and action like I ought. And yet there's still clear evidence in your life. And yet you're demanding more evidence. You're, you're, demand, you're actually functioning out of a works righteousness kind of mindset. You're saying, my goodness, if I'm going to be secure with God, I have to live a perfect life. No, to you I would say, if that's where you're at this morning, come to this text and plead. Plead for the comfort of God's forgiveness. That God knows. He speaks louder than your heart. Would you come to the word and let the spirit of God scream? Scream so that you can finally hear it. All right, so that's heading one. Heading two. The second part of the, of the, of the passage seems to go have a theme about us being confident before God. This will be verse 21 through 23. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Let's first look at verse 21, where it says, if our hearts do not condemn us, then we can have confidence before God. Whether one gets to that place of confidence, the long route through realizing I'm condemned and I don't love very well and I need the cross of Jesus Christ, and then going to the cross and then finding confidence, or feeling condemned 
and saying, no, I, want to run to, I need to run to the cross of Jesus Christ so I experience my forgiveness. The end place where John wants us to be is at a place of confidence coming before God the Father. That is the imagery. In ancient times, the word here, it's, it's interesting, the word confidence stood for the most valued right of a citizen in a free state to speak his mind. In other words, this is saying you have first, God and what John, a good pastor, wants you to have is First Amendment rights before God. Not just to speak your mind here in the United States, but to speak your mind before an almighty, powerful creator who is wrathful and sovereign, but good. In other words, confidence before God means you get to come before God unhampered. You can say what you need to say. And I was saying, by the way, yesterday, some really unsightly things to God. I was ticked that this wasn't clear. There's an enormous amount of pressure to get to 3 o'clock on a Saturday and go, um, your spirit isn't showing up here. Knock, knock. Where are you? You can actually go to God with confidence and say and cry out to him in your fear and in your shame to expose yourself before him. And this is one of the great blessings of the Christian life that John longs for us to experience is that you would confidently stand before the almighty God. That we can go before God with the approach of a child. Imagine this. This is actually, this is an incredible imagery because we think of prayer, we're, we might be so, we're overly used to it. And this imagery of, of in prayer going before God. But let's ask it like the good of, like the old evangelists would ask it. If you were to die and stand before God tonight, would you stand confidently? And John's statement in the place for the Christian is this, is that yes, you can stand before a holy, almighty, omnipotent God and you can do so with confidence. But that's, that's, that's confidence. That's unbelievable. Because when you see when God shows up in the rest of the scriptures, the most holy people in the Bible go, oh my goodness, woe is me, I'm gonna die. And yet for those covered in the righteousness of Christ, those who've been brought to this place of assurance that they can stand naked before God and before his judgment throne and say, I can stand here with confidence. Why? Because of Jesus. No one else gets to approach God like this except for his children, right? Dads, no one gets to approach you like this in the middle of the night except for your kids, right? Even if your wife wakes you up in the middle of the light at night, you're going, no, that was too confident to wake me up like that. But if your kid, they can wake you up and they can ask for anything, the most ridiculous things in the middle of the night, my kids don't need a reason to wake me up. And this is the picture that I think John would have of us, of a child standing. Can you imagine, like, if you ever had this experience as a kid, remember standing outside your parents' bedroom and you're scared about the fact that you're going to wake them up and that your dad's just going to, like, or your mom would just bear claw you? Like, like you woke them up and they just, and, and they're like, that's ridiculous, go back to bed. And you're afraid of the response. What John would just say is, he wants you as a child of God to enter into God's throne room with confidence and he's not going to claw your face off. That you can be confident coming before him. That, he's, that you're, when your heart screams to you that there's going to be condemnation here, that he's not going to find me right. That John would actually say, no, no, no. I want you to come to a place where you are right, where you can come confidently before God. And the good news of the gospel is this, is that there is a son of God. There was a son who stood in the presence of his father, God the Father, and he stood with absolute confidence because he was the same in essence. They had a perfect relationship, and yet what did he do? He left that. He left that so that he might come into a world in which the world condemned him. Our justice systems condemned him. You condemned him, and God the Father condemned him. Why? So that you could enter the Father's presence without condemnation. 
Whether you're saved today or not, that's the truth of the gospel, and we would call you to embrace it. John carries on, though, in verses 22 and moves on from this confidence and even goes beyond this with another promise. In verse 22, he continues, and whatever we ask, we will receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Do you see this confidence goes beyond just, just confidence in his presence, but then you can have confidence in your requests. It's not only the confidence to approach God and to speak your mind. That's delightful in and of itself. But then you can also have confidence that he'll answer your prayers. This is, of course, an incredibly remarkable statement. For it is a claim that your prayer will be answered and be answered in the affirmative when you have a confident heart. Ask and you will receive, John says in his gospel. Now, of course, John's communication communicates there's some conditions here for answered prayer. There's the general communications in the Bible that we could look at, right? In the Bible, it says a number of things about the rules that hedge these kind of promises. For example, Jesus cries out to the Father and says, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. That is one of the statements that we ought to make, that we may ask for something, but we say, God, it's not my will, but yours be done. Paul asked three times, for example, for God to remove the thorn in the flesh, and God didn't, it didn't happen. In 1 John 4, 5, 14, which we're going to see in a couple of weeks, it says if we ask anything according to his will, your prayers have to be according to God's will. And so asking God for a card today, he's not just a kind of a giant treasure box. That is not how things work out. And then John here provides us some conditions as well for answered prayer. The yes come confidently. Yes, have confidence that God's going to answer your prayer. But there are some conditions. God, it says, answers prayers, the prayers of people who keep his commandments. And his commandments are then summed up like this to believe in the name of Jesus and to love each other. Therefore, God answers prayers for people who believe in Jesus and who love each other. If you're living out, that that is your heart's desire and your life's attitude and disposition. Now, the conditions for the Christians, particularly for New Testament Christians, this strikes us, this strikes our ear as being bad. But you need to understand that there is a difference between conditions and earning things. You don't earn God's prayers or God's answers. This is not a way of earning. Earning is a way of showing my worth and putting God in my debt. You cannot put God in your debt. All that you have is already a gift from him. Your very life is a gift from him. A condition is right use. Are you using prayer right? In other words, there are conditions for a right use of prayer that leads to answered prayer. Prayer has a specific design, and if you misuse it, it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. It malfunctions. And what is the design of prayer? The design of prayer, as it was communicated in these commandments, is the design of prayer is designed by God to be the, be the effect of faith and to be for loving others. We tend to think of prayer as being, I'm going to pray to God for all my needs, and that's totally legitimate. But what we see here is that with the effect of our prayer, that it comes out of a heart of faith and it comes out of a heart of love for other people. And it's those kinds of prayers that get answered. That is the right use of prayers. So what we would say is we pray, we ought to pray in the right design. The understanding when you walk with God is that you're not going to walk with God perfectly. And you're probably not going to pray perfectly. But you can enter his presence with confidence. And you should, Lord willing, you should see prayers answered. As you come to him and as God sanctifies you and changes you so that you grow in faith and you grow in your trust in him and who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And also, as you grow in your love for other people, perhaps you'll find your prayer life begins to be bigger prayers because of your trust in Jesus. And perhaps your prayer life will begin to be less self-focused 
and more others-focused. Or even if it is focused on yourself, it is, <laughs> gracious God, I need to be a better parent because I'm screwing these kids up and I love them too much. I love them too much. Gracious God, in my workplace, I'm known as a jerk. Change my heart because your name is on the line before these people. Change me, God. These are the type of prayers that God answers. Heading three, our final heading when we come in for our landing this morning. Heading three is abiding in God. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So in John's thinking, and again, I don't understand it, but apparently he hears the word commandments and he's talking about those and then he goes, you know what? I also know something else that commandments are connected to. It's connected to abiding with God. And so he jumps from answered prayer to abiding in God. And so that's where we go for this last few minutes. This word abiding is, is one of the most important words in the scriptures and it's annoying that it's at the end of the text because I can't give it the time that it deserves. But it is, it is unbelievable. We've addressed this at various times through the years, but it's this. Abiding means your place and where you stay. And when it says this word, abiding in God, it means that your place is in God and God is in you. That is how intimate your connection is with God. It is familial. It is the imagery of lovers. It is the imagery of those who are in the same house. Your house and his house are the same. He abides in you and you abide in him, the fact that God would have this kind of closeness with us, that he would reside in us and we would become more like him because of it. But what we see here is this, in this term, terminology of abiding is that those who keep the commandments of God are those who can be assured that they abide in God. Now, the, the, the dizzying, there's a dizzying circularity to John's statements here in this verse. Follow along with me. Obedience to the commandments of God is the sign that God abides in you and that you are in God. Then he says, we know that God abides in us and we know that God abides in, in me because of the presence of the Spirit whom God has given to us. And then finally he says, and this begs the question, how do you know the Spirit has been given to you? Well, the answer in the Bible is you know the Spirit has been given you because you keep God's commandments. We've come full circle. It is dizzying, but the answer, what all things point to, that the, the way you can know that you're abiding in God, the way that you know that you have the Holy Spirit is if you obey God's commandments. That is not the means of your salvation, but that is the means of knowing you are saved. Those are two very distinct things. By the Holy Spirit, whom God has given us as a free grace, a free gift, we know that God abides in us and we abide in God because the Holy Spirit resides in us. And it's so redundant, isn't it? Because the Holy Spirit is who? God. <laughs> and so if the Holy Spirit resides in you, guess what? God abides in you. You see the circularity of the logic here? It becomes mind-numbing. But maybe he's just trying to make it very, very clear. John's point is keeping, keeping God's commandments and abiding in God, they always go together. They always go together. You cannot separate the two. One does come before the other. If God is in you, you will obey the commands. If God is in, not in you, then you will not obey the commands. If the Spirit of God is in you, you'll obey, obey God's commands. If the Spirit of God is not in you, then you won't obey God's commands. And so the proof that the Holy Spirit resides in you, the proof that, the Holy, that God himself has made his dwelling place with you is that you obey the commands of God. John, is, I believe, is seeking to drive home the incredible point of evidence. Is there evidence? That is what the whole point of the book is, right? 
to say, listen, I have some tests for you. This is, not to, this is not the means by which you are saved, but this is the means by which you can know you're saved. And more and more, what you should plead for is if you don't see the evidence, that you'd run back to where we began with. That whole issue, if you don't see evidence, that you'd run to the cross of Jesus. And if you do see evidence, that you would praise God. Praise God for the cross of Jesus that has made it all possible. And let's close our time there. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, to the degree that I spoke truth, your spirit promises to use it. And so with that, I comfort my own spirit today. And so gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that to the degree that I was able to communicate the truth of your word, that your spirit would move and work. God, I pray for the, those in this room who are afflicted, who are afflicted with um, a heart that is slow to believe the gospel and the good news aspect of it. That is slow to believe that God has definitely forgiven them of their sins. Who have, who have made an idol out of their own performance to such degree, degree that, Lord, they read a verse, the verses like 11 through 18, they hear about loving one another, and the first thing they feel is condemnation. God, I pray that you comfort their hearts if they are truly yours. For those in this room who are slow to be convicted, though, that need the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who have a hard heart, who are not listening to your voice, who are unrepentant, who take advantage of the good news and just go, that's nice. Lord, I pray that you would make the good news good to them by showing them the depths of their sinfulness and that you draw them to yourself. God, in all these things, I pray for everyone here that, Lord, we would come to a place of confidence in, in standing before you. That, Lord, we would not be like scared children, but, Lord, we would be like bold children who come and ask for bread at 2 o'clock in the morning, that, Lord, we would cry out to you with our needs, we would cry out to you in our shame, and that we would know that the good news of the gospel, because Jesus has purchased it for us, is that you will accept us and you will welcome us into your sight. Thank you for that news this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.